0: what's one thing I could do different, right? And and every single time when I have done that, what I found is if I ask a specific question, what's one thing I should do different? And one of the things Dory told me was like, you know, if your aspiration is to speak at like very large conferences, you have to prove that you can do small conferences. So have you started speaking at small conferences, right? And I thought it was such a great Sort of a great sort of advice to start somewhere and and make progress incrementally. So, that's just an example of what has worked for me, or at least I have tried to learn from the best and take that one small step, but do it over and over and over again.
1: Doing out there, folks. This is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn, and the dynamic trio is assembled once again.
2: What is up, everybody? It is Sophia, and I play for Team Breakline.
3: Hey, everybody! This is Bethany Coates I just love being in the Breakline Arena with Soap and Kenny. Is there anything better? No, it's really great. It's my favorite. Let's just hang out in here.
1: So to all of our listeners, to all of our breaklines, we are so glad that you're joining us for another episode. As per usual, we got another baller, we got another thought mm-hmm. leader, we have a pioneer by the name of Duda Sadadip, and he is the chief customer officer at Active Campaign. And so I know I took away a ton from this conversation, uh, but Bethany, would you mind teeing us up for what the listeners may have in store?
3: I just loved chatting with Duda. He is such an interesting person, such a dynamic personality. And he, um, he, you know, brought us through his entire career. But one thing that he said, which I really loved, he was, he was sharing an anecdote earlier in his career. He was ready for a change and a recruiter at Google called him. And Google at that time was the company that everyone wanted to, to join. And Duda wanted to join too, but just not in the role that they had in mind for him. He really wanted to be closer to product. And he decided he kind of had this really clear conversation with himself in his own mind where he said, you know, it's time for me to ask for what I want. And so he told the recruiter, Hey, I would love to be part of the team just not in this particular capacity and six months later that recruiter called him back with the role that he really wanted and it was a formative learning experience for him in terms of self-advocacy and charting the course that you really want to be on versus the one that might be presented to you first
2: yeah and in terms of kind of charting your your own course that really was a theme that we saw throughout this entire conversation i loved that point bethany i also loved another aspect of when he was describing a point in his career when he had felt like he was plateauing a little bit, and he didn't really know what next direction to take. So what he did was he turned to the people in his community and the people that he admired, and he really just asked them, like, how did you get where you are? What do you think I should do? And that's what people do all the time with our Breakline community, is they use their community as a legitimate lever to help them learn things about themselves and about the world around them. And I I think it's such a significant aspect of a lot of people's growth. So I love that that Duda shed some light on that.
1: Ladies, I couldn't agree more. And as I think about this conversation, the the phrase that comes to mind for me is just growth mindset. And Mm -hmm. to see Duda apply that growth mindset to his career, not being afraid to experiment, not being afraid to try something new. I think sometimes it's so easy to get wrapped around the axle about having a perfect career trajectory. And what I love most about this conversation was Duda really got to a point in his career where he embraced the change. He embraced the diversity of experience. And I think that is what has led to the tremendous success that he's experienced in his career is now he can bring all of these vantage points. He can bring all of these perspectives based off of the, the unique trajectory of his career. And so I think this is a great masterclass in having that introspection and humility and growth mindset as you're managing your own career. And just super excited for our listeners to get that insight directly from him. So uh, I don't know about you ladies, but maybe we should give the listeners what they came here for.
3: let's not delay let's not delay
2: we will see you guys on the other side
3: duda thank you so much for joining us it's such a treat to have you with us today
0: Uh, thank you bethany it's a pleasure being here i'm looking forward to this conversation
3: I am as well. Judah, I want to start with you and you, like many of the folks that we highlight in, in our Breakline Speaker Series, you are an immigrant. You were born in India. You came to the U.S. to finish your graduate degree in computer science. And I think that this personal background and that journey will resonate with a lot of folks that, that are here today. Can you talk about that experience and, and how it has shaped you as, as an individual and as a professional and as a leader in the tech?
0: sector? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I, I, I came here for my uh, graduate studies and uh, it was it was a different time. And there was this thing called the dot-com boom going on. And we uh, uh, just as I was sort of exiting, the boom was no longer there. It was actually a bust. So I entered the workforce in a very interesting time, which was a lot of heady optimism about what the possibility of tech is. And then quickly, like the bubble burst and it was like, oh my God, panic. That's just kind of the setting. But I think that setting set up a lot of things in motion for me and has been probably one of the best experiences as I look back, because one of the things it drove very quick, hard, and easy, uh, you know, quick and hard was, ultimately, you have to add value to customers, you have to make a business that grows, you have to be part of a business that will ultimately have a path to making money. Ideas are good, but execution matters. Now, I did did some stuff, as you asked, you know, my what my journey was, I, I did some work starting off in engineering because that's where my background was but at some point in time I was I would say a little bit bored a little bit curious and I was feeling like I was hitting a little bit of a plateau and I personally felt like I could do more and I did not know what that more would be so I did what I what I thought I should do is to talk to a bunch of people and look at people I admire. And that took me on an interesting path of trying many new jobs, which was probably a very significant thing in terms of learning because I got to do product marketing, I got to do sales, I got to lead like an M&A integration at HP with uh, Mercury. And then ultimately that then spun up into an opportunity at a startup and then ultimately into Google and then Pinterest and here I am. So I think that diversity has really helped me sort of move through my career.
3: Hey, Duda, I wanna talk about that moment when Google approached you. And this was many years ago at this point. Google at that time was the sort of buzziest company in the entire world. Everyone wanted to work at Google and they found you, they wanted you to interview for a particular role. And you had a moment of clarity and decided to take a risk. Will you talk with our BreakLiners here today about what happened?
0: So I'll give a little bit of preamble and then kind of like the story, what happened. So this is like, again, another downturn. (laughs) This is now 2009, 2010. For anybody who remembers that, it was not really great. And I'm at the startup. And just to put this into perspective, I was leading a team of product managers. I was in product management, something that I had like really worked to kind of go and get into And it was a product management and a product marketing role combined. So it was kind of, I was generally happy-ish there. But when Google called, it was clearly something that at least in 2010, if Google called you, you took the call and you probably joined whatever role they offered you. Um, However, I had been in product management for a while and I just saw myself being able to do something a little bit more than just manage the product. I wanted to be closer to customers. I wanted to manage larger teams. I wanted to be close to strategy and business. And that's just sort of my internal desire. I had, I don't know about other people, you know, over drinks and Friday whining sessions told how I could be doing so more, but like I just was not getting the opportunity. So Google calls me. And I, they're describing this position, which is basically a version of the same position I have. And I don't know what happened at that day and what was at that moment, but I just said, you know, I am so flattered to get this call. However, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about my career and what would move me is something that has these attributes. And I spelled out those things, all the things I've thought of a lot about, and, and when I look back, maybe it was, I probably didn't expect I was going to get the job. So I was like, why not just say like what you want? And then at least you did not get what you want versus going through the process and just not you know, getting it, right? So I said that and then they're like, okay, that's good to know. We're, we're like always hiring, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that was be the end of it. Uh, nope, about three, four weeks back, The recruiter called back and said, you know, we have a role it's not in product, but it's in actually business strategy and operations and it's really about all of this other stuff and uh, yeah I interviewed and that's how I ended up there. Yeah, it was a long interview, but yeah it all worked out, I guess.
3: Thank you um, for telling that story, Duda. I love your, um, I love your clarity and your, and your chutzpah in that moment. And you spent the next several years at Google and you've described this as a really profound learning experience for you as a professional. And, and one of the things that you have said to me in reflecting upon that time in your career, you said, I'm a big believer in learning from people and asking for help. Can you talk about how you learned to ask for help? What prompted you to ask for help, which was something that you became particularly adept at, at Google?
0: Yeah, I think, I will say, I think my journey to asking for help started a long earlier uh, than Google, but to go to Google, I think to go to Google specifically, you know, you, you join Google, it's like everybody has great degrees, everybody's so well-spoken, and all said and done I mean at the end of the day I wasn't born here I always feel like somehow my communication skills could always use more improvement and I still believe it to this day Uh, so I would look at people and I would be like oh my god like these people are like so good right so a a couple of things some things I would say I'll point out this particular moment uh, where I thought I was doing well. And I, I wanted to honestly ask for some feedback. And I was just like, hey, I want to go to the next level of my career. Uh, what should I be thinking of? And the person I asked to, she was the president of America's Margot, And she said, you know, dude, I, like, you're a great guy. I know you're a great guy. But nobody else apart from the people who work with know that you're a great guy. And what would you, like, you know, you, you should think about certain things, like maybe speaking outside, maybe sharing your knowledge so that other people know what you can offer. And ultimately in today's world, it's not sufficient to do the work. You People need to know what specific value you're going to add, especially if you're, Aspirations are going to be to go to a C level, executive level role. And I thought it was so, so, so um, uh, such a great advice, honestly speaking. And it led me to a path. I, I read this book by Dory Clark called uh, Standout. I reached out to Dory and every single time I was like, I'm not really good at this. So let me find an expert who is amazing at this. And then let me just ask them, what's one thing I could do different, right? Or, and and every single time when I have done that, what I found is if I ask a specific question, what's one thing I should do different? And one of the things Dory told me was like, you know, if your aspiration is to speak at like very large conferences, you have to prove that you can do small conferences. So, have you started speaking at small conferences, right? And I thought it was such a great sort of a great sort of advice to start somewhere and and make progress incrementally. So that's just an example of what a sort of kind of you know, generally sort of what has worked for me, or at least I have tried to learn from the best and take that one small step, but do it over and over and over again.
3: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Duda. And I even loved how you phrased the question because you phrased it in a way that would ensure that you get actionable feedback which I think is really important because in American culture, we kind of shy away from giving constructive feedback, and then we deprive people of the chance to grow. Um, to, so you stayed with Google for a number of years, and then you had an opportunity to join Pinterest, and Pinterest subsequently went public, and, you know, it's a big fancy brand. At the time, though, that decision to make the leap was not necessarily super clear. <laughs> Can you talk to us about your thought process there and and how you decided that that was the right next step for you? Uh,
0: that's a That's a great question. and again, I think that's a, a little bit of kind of going back in time. Like 2016, 2017, you know, Pinterest is definitely not the hottest thing around. Uh, and what's hot in that time frame is Airbnb, Uber. Uh, Uber was like at its peak, everybody wanted to be part of Uber, right? And a lot of people were like, why are you joining Pinterest? You didn't get a job at Uber, right? So there was a lot of sort of that, um, there is a better brand out there and you should have found a better one. And then I think this goes, you know, there's a lot of compare and despair that goes on in our day-to-day lives, like compare with something else and then feel bad you didn't get it or you should have done it. But in my particular case, I, I made the decision because of certain things. One, I had that conversation with Margot, But after that, it really led me on a path to what really excites me and where can I add the biggest value? And what is it that I, in many ways, want to be good at and want to be known at? So when I was to look at opportunities, In my mind, I was trying to maximize what is the impact that I could potentially provide to any company. And there is always a very sort of um, a tough process. There's no like right or wrong answer, but because I had some level of barometer of what I wanted, I started to kind of naturally optimize for those things. I would ask more questions to help them figure out is customer experience important to them? Why is customer experience important to them? What, will, what do different people as they were interviewing me would see the opportunity that they would want someone in this position to solve? and where those things that I would be able to add distinctive value in. So hopefully that gives a little bit of color into like my decision and journey and how I ended up there, yeah.
3: Mm -hmm. And Duda, one one of the sort of key success factors that you described in your journey being sort of the new person at the table and sort of having to establish yourself, establish your reputation, you talked about, about kind of leaning on tactics that make you feel confident and that start a positive flywheel going. Will you, will you help explain what you meant by that? And the reason I'm asking is because a lot of the brake who are here today will soon start their new roles. And you kind of have this grace period where you can, you can make sure that you've got the wind at your back. And so I'd love your thoughts here as well.
0: Yeah, one of the things you know, I'll 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 go back a little bit in time and kind of specifically talk about like so. This happened at Google, right? Like I I, I joined. It's a very competitive place, uh, very smart people, and uh, you have a grace period, like you said. Everybody has a little bit of a grace period, but then I and I quickly started to observe uh, the people who seem to have credibility, a lot of credibility. What do they do? right? Why do they have credibility? And I started to observe a few folks who were really off the charts. Like you could see when they spoke in meetings, like people listened, really listened and they took notes. And one of the folks is like Jim I've I've, I've, He's been a mentor for me. I've, I've observed him and some of the things he did, which I thought have, I've kind of built into my repertoire is really understanding the business and really understanding key facts and figures about the business. One of the things he he always does amazingly, which I have tried to, I can only say copy at best, um, but what is it called, right? Like the copying is the best form of flattery or play, like whatever that saying is, right? Uh, but he, he is always very good at every, after every meeting, remembering key facts and what he does, which I actually asked him, again, in the spirit of asking, like how do you do this? He will summarize his things into a notepad or in a card. And in, in this pre-COVID times, so we had these things called whiteboards. He would actually write things over there. And he showed me, listen, I write these things over here. Helps me remember what things are important what metrics are important, what things are important. And then when I see something else, I'm able to ask a question in this broader context. So I'm able to look at something, assess it, not just in the context of that presentation or the discussion, but in this broader context of key different things that's going on in the business. And when I connect those both of the dots, that's why maybe it's a, it's a tactic that's used. And I thought it was a great tactic. And I've tried to do it over and over again because it helps me get a better understanding of the whys behind the business. And it then gives me a better understanding to ask the right questions, to seek better understanding, to make better decisions moving forward hope that gives a little bit of kind of color into sort of like, but once then, once you establish that credibility and that understanding, naturally, people will gravitate towards this person to seek more answers. And that then sort of builds in that flywheel, if I can put it that way, of, you know, one insight leads to the second insight to the third insight. And in in you know, a short period of time right you you understand the business in a much more deeper way but that's because you're keeping track of what's mm-hmm. going on up along the way
3: mhm mhm you can really stand out as a much more sophisticated thinker and business person if you have that a, con- a grasp of the broader business and Duda, you know when you started your career you started out as a very technical um person and you pivoted into a customer facing role. And I'm really interested in that transition as well, because we sometimes get into a mindset of I'm this, and therefore I can't be that, You know, I'm a technical person, therefore I can't be a customer person, or I'm a customer person, therefore I can't be a technical person. You're an example of someone who has flowed pretty seamlessly um, across many different parts of the business. Will you talk about what drew you to the customer side? Why did you want to be customer facing? What, what was it about that part of the business that was um, enticing to you, and and how you convinced yourself that you could also add value there?
0: Yeah, I. So, first of all, I it is probably a little bit of my own personality. I I tend to get bored by doing the same things over and over again, and. Um, I think uh um yeah i have you know my grandfather was a very influential person in my life and one of the things he always said is like you know if you believe something you should try don't don't say no to something you don't understand right say yes and try it always and i thought in a very weird way it has affected my career in a most positive way because the combination of sort of getting like not being happy if i'm not happy then i need to try something else kind of is kind of like the motion i've gone through over and over again but i would be remiss in saying it was all self driven and it was all like there was some chance in all of this there was some luck involved uh, but I think to your broader question around how did I make that transition to the customer role and so on and so forth, it was actually I was in um, in um, uh, I was at Google and I was doing all the strategy role and everything else and there was this very interesting problem around customer support and I had never done customer support ever in my life. The most I had done was actually talk to some folks internally for some, project I was running during like my integration MA integration days. Okay. How does it, how do you put all this together? That was, that was the extent of my knowledge of customer support, but, but I was at Google. And, um, uh, when this came in, uh, my manager at that time, he was like, listen, it's a great opportunity. Uh, what do you think about this? And, um, I was a little bit unsure, actually not a little bit, very unsure. And one of the things he said is like, you know, I mean, we believe you can do this job, right? Um, and, um, you know, you know, we're there to kind of support you along the way also. It's not like we're gonna throw in the deep end and just kind of go in there. So I wanna be very fair in saying, I think some of this, I have always wanted different things that has driven me, but I also wanna be very open and be grateful to my managers who believed in me, and saw that I could do more, gave me the opportunity, and honestly encouraged me a little bit along the way. I, I, try, I hope I try to do the same way, and others feel the same way in terms, of, in the spirit of paying it forward. But I would definitely say I had some support, not like skill-based support, but like moral support to take those jumps in some of these cases. Some of them I did on my own because I was like, you know. This sounds interesting and I should do it. Um, uh, But some of them definitely uh, were a function of um, people believing in me.
3: I love that, Dita. And I was saying in the chat that I was so grateful that you were actually talking through how it happened because humble people like you often will say, I just got lucky. And in fact, it's really hard work and other people coming to the table and you having the courage to take the leap. So I was really glad that you told that story. Um, Duda, I want to bring us up to present day. You're the chief customer officer at Active Campaign. Active Campaign recently raised a quarter of a billion dollars with a B. <laughs> and you all are on this incredible ride right now. Will you talk to us about Active Campaign? What is the problem that you all are solving? How are you doing it? Um, what are you really loving about your work today?
0: That's such a great question. I'm I'm absolutely super excited about active campaign. First and foremost, right? Um, small businesses are effectively the lifeline of any economy anywhere in the world. In fact, more people are employed as small and medium business owners. And that could be anybody who's trying out a new side hustle to somebody who is providing for their family because they have a gardening business, all the way to, you know, the little startup that's making it big, right? So small and medium business encompasses so many different. And as businesses, one of the first and the foremost things businesses can do is to build relationships with their customers. Because, you need customers and they're gonna pay you for your services. But the problem that most SMB owners run into is they're effectively extremely time poor. To run a business, you have to do so many things. And sometimes building this relationship on a one-on-one basis becomes really, really tough. And what Campaign does effectively is to help small businesses automate all of these customer touch points and deliver great experiences. It could be as simple as something like, you start your new Shopify store and people put stuff in the shopping cart and forget, an active campaign can help you automate that whole process. To if you are somebody who is has a B2C product and you're a restaurant owner, and you switch to online delivery, but you need some reviews on Yelp, right? So you need to send people surveys, get some feedback, and encourage them to kind of submit like a good feedback on Yelp, right? And of course, you can do one-on-one, and but with Active Campaign, you can write in automations to identify those business rules in a very simple way, and scale up that process. So our goal as a company is to really empower every small and medium business owner to really grow their company by leveraging how they amplify their customer experiences using customer experience automation.
3: Thank you so much, Duda will you talk to us about the process that you all went through to raise this last round of capital what was that like how were you received by the investment community what were they excited about why did they decide to invest at this point in the life cycle of the company
0: so a few things first of all the company has been on a great growth trajectory way high in the double digits over 60% and we have over 150,000 customers globally with Customers in 170 countries. Uh, this is like more than like where I think to the, we are. In, we do business in more companies than McDonald's does business in at this point in time. Uh, so it's a truly diverse global business. And if you look from any investment perspective, everybody wants to be part of a global ecosystem, a company that has not just has kind of legs in the U.S. but legs globally because. So much of the work, so much of the SMB business that we are going to ultimately see is going to come from a global perspective. So, I think for VCs investors, a growth journey, a growth journey that is diversified internationally, and obviously an extremely strong product market fit, uh, all sort of contribute to helping them feel like this is a place that's going to grow, and as a result. Uh, be one a part of that, um, uh, be a part of the trajectory.
3: Mm -hmm. And dude, one of my mentors is a a man named Andy Ratcliffe, who co-founded Benchmark Capital. And he always says, you know, when you think about how successful a company can be, the first thing that you think about is the size of the market that they're addressing. The second thing is, do they have product market fit? How did you all at Active Campaign know that you had reached product market fit? What what made that apparent to you?
0: You know, when I was looking at the company and I was asking around questions, one of the questions I always sort of try to understand in in, in this process, that is hopefully something for everybody to think about business, right? How much of this is organic acquisition, self-service acquisition versus paid or direct acquisition? Uh, You can jack up growth by throwing dollars like there's no tomorrow on Google Ads, Facebook ads, it's just gonna destroy your CAC like crazy, right? Like it's gonna be like all over the you're gonna get good great growth numbers, but that growth is gonna be extremely unsustainable in the long term because you're just gonna have to pay to acquire and that ratio is gonna go out of whack. One of the things that told me was that ratio between self-service, organic versus paid, right? Paid as in direct acquisition efforts. And that is definitely something that gave me a good sense like, okay, if people are able to come in from a forum and so on and so forth. The other places I look to sort of establish is what I look at social proof. What were people looking and talking about the company in public forum? Whether it is sites like G2, uh, which provide like, you know, business review software, business reviews for software products and many other services. And also, I actually subscribe to a bunch of um, uh, Facebook groups, uh, LinkedIn groups, and just kind of see like what people are talking about. Um, And that gave me a good sense of, okay, people really are trying to understand and unpack the product. And that then sort of give me the second layer of dimension. Okay, numbers aside, there is a community of people. And that's what sort of helped me establish that product fit, product market fit. When you have product market fit, there is no magical formula. But you look at some of these individual components and you start to build a picture that is relatively comprehensive. That, okay, there's a ratio with numbers. There's what these people are talking about. So it's a little bit of qualitative, a little bit of quantitative to kind of make that assessment.
3: Thank you, Duda. And you you have a, a huge amount of depth now in customer success and obviously customer experience. And one of our previous speakers said that he expects most CEOs going forward to have experience with customer success. Why, why is that, why has that become such a crucial component as we think about career pathways and The types of experiences that we may want to have access to as we continue building, why should we be considering customer success as part of that journey along the way?
0: I think there's been a few broader macro trends that have really sort of changed the dimension of why customer experience is so important. I think first and foremost, from a business model perspective, there are way more subscription-based businesses now then there were 10 years back, right? Everything from a meal delivery service, which is like the, on one end of the one end of the spectrum, all the way to software as a service, business as a service, everything is almost available as a service these days, right? You use it, and then you keep it for a certain amount of time. And hopefully, if it's really good, you stitch, like, you know, you, 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 continue using it. If not, you switch to something else, right? And customers, whether it's corporations or whether it is individuals want more flexibility. And so that's sort of like one factor, right? The second, as choices have become available, every business has understood the value of direct relationships. It started about seven, 10 years ago with trends like direct-to-consumer brands, right? Where Warby Parkers or Bonobos and all these brands started with the way of disrupting the supply chain and going directly to customers. And what has been interesting is each and every one of these companies have become extremely successful because they have been able to engage with their customers and truly action on that customer insight. So as a trend, you need to retain more customers if you're in a subscription-like business model in some form, right? And the broader trend of engaging with customers to develop more niche products, develop more personal brands, as both of them kind of come together You need people who understand customers more and more at a much more in-depth level, which is not just overall business metrics, but how do you nurture relationships? How do you convert poor experiences into uh, successful experiences? How do you make them into a dissatisfied, into a loyal customer to an advocate? Because the reality is, it costs five times more to acquire a new customer than it is to keep one. So the fundamentals of business is all about understanding your customers a lot more deeper. And I think that's what's kind of promoting. And I will say, you know, a big kudos, you know, there are competitors, HopSpot, right? But Yamini, who started as their chief customer officer, is already their CEO So big congratulations on that front. However, that sort of kind of goes to what you were saying. That trend is not just a trend. It's already happening in real life.
3: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Duda. One more question for me, and then I'm going to turn it over to our audience. You earned your MBA from Berkeley. And in an interview for Haas, you said, failure is part of building something and failure should yield in learning. How do you ensure that your teams feel comfortable taking risks that may turn into failures? And how do you spot when people are shying away from failing?
0: I think um, nobody wants to fail, right? Everybody wants to come up with any project you do and (laughs) say it worked. I mean, I have like multiple projects at this point in time that are not showing the results that they should. And in fact, Um, there was a moment just today morning where somebody said, uh, you know, we did this, we're making progress, but I was hoping the numbers would be bigger. And to me, that was such an important moment. And I, instead of sort of just brushing apart, what I said was, I love this conversation. You're all right. We can be doing better. It's okay. We're not doing good right now. But We should be doing better. So let's figure out how we are going to do better. I think failure is how you handle these setbacks. Of course, would I not want after a month, month and a half of doing something, the numbers to be a lot better than where we are? Absolutely. But that's just part of building something. There are going to be setbacks. How we make it okay to have failures and continue on that journey of learning, I think it's extremely important to role model as leaders. Number two, I feel like when failures happen, a lot of times, many of us, including me, show our disappointment. But one of the things I have tried to do very consciously is to make it clear, I'm not disappointed at the people. I'm just disappointed at the outcome because I was really hoping that we were all winning together. And that's okay, we are not, but let's work together. And I think sometimes when we express disappointment as leaders, it's not necessarily against the people, but they don't know that. So how do we as leaders explicitly say, I'm not happy about the results, not to do with the team. I know we can do better. Let's talk about what we can do better. Making those circumstances be much more okay to be able to talk about that openly and creating that level of psychological safety, I do think is the job of leadership. And that is something hopefully that promotes that uh, promotes that cycle.
3: Um, and psychological safety as an element of high-performing teams is a concept that Google actually created and popularized. And due to... Um, I want to turn it over to some questions coming in the chat and there's one from Diane and she's saying, thank you so much for spending time with us. She says it's comforting to hear how pervasive imposter syndrome is. How did you shush your inner critic when you felt like you weren't enough for the roles that you were going into?
0: I, I will say, uh, I always feel like, oh shit, did I do the wrong thing? I think even today I make decisions and I'm not always sure. Uh, one thing I have learned very early on is to be extremely open about what is not working. I, I, I'll i put it this way. I think some, some boss, like I made a mistake, some like early in my career and said like, you know, you should like never like let your boss surprise you. And I think I took that really to heart and I made sure like I never... So a couple of things I like to sort of do when it comes to work and work decisions is be extremely transparent from the get-go, what's working, what's not working. And to me, for me specifically, when I write this stuff down, sometimes I'm like, I think I'm making a story up for myself. And it creates transparency, obviously, between my boss and myself around what's working, what's not working. But maybe there are paths to it and one way to one way for me I'm not saying this for everybody else one one trick that I have applied is like okay it's a problem I clearly believe it's a problem why don't I ask other people how big of a problem is it and sometimes I'm like oh yeah that's kind of a problem but like, yeah, you have a bigger problem there. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm overthinking this. I just need to like, let this go. So yes, you there is an lo- element of sort of like, everybody's like, oh, you believe in yourself. Of course, I believe in myself to some degree, but then I'm also not sure about many things. And when I'm not sure, those are some of the tactics I use to calm myself down and reassure myself that, okay, I'm not gonna really jump off a proverbial cliff, right? I have a path to get out of it.
3: Um, I really love that example, Duda, because I think part of the power that imposter syndrome has over us is the sense of isolation. And you were pushing back on that isolation by inviting other people into your thought process and, and engaging with other people. So I think that was really, really helpful feedback. I wanted to get to a question from Mike. He says, Duda, in your TED Talk, you spoke about organizational goal setting but how do you discern the values or culture of the team in order to guide the change process, especially in a huge team of teams like Google?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's Google, it's uh, the active campaign, it's like over 350 people, right? Like, I mean, there's a large number of people in these teams and I, I think you're absolutely spot on. Understanding the values are absolutely important. I think I would say, I've been fortunate to be in almost every company has some kind of like a some kind of a true knot about what they want to be, including Active Campaign, including Google. And one of the things I have sort of said and always is you want to ac- accomplish the goals with the goals, you know, like a smart, actionable. If they're larger, if they're team goals, you kind of want to set more stretch goals. If they're individual goals, kind of set more like kind of discrete things that you can do more incrementally. But the values portion where I always say is how you communicate that goal. And explaining why that goal matters. That's one way. The second way values can, and should I think in my opinion be used, is how is what I call the methods problem, right? Like how do you get to that goal? So the goal may be we have to improve our customer experience by giving them shorter wait times on, I don't know, phone or chat or whatever, right? But then just by saying it, it's not going to happen. How do you do that? And many companies will have some sort of a customer first value, right? So we turn that into and specifically talk about we want to do this because our company value is to serve customers and keep customers first. And are we really, if we don't like waiting in lines, do you think our customers like waiting in lines? Right? So the, the values can be used to express why something is important. And if it's not going well, a um, common value, at least at Active Campaign, we have is iterate iterate everything always. And as like, okay, it didn't work, that's great. What are we gonna try next? So hopefully that gives a connection between like the broader goal setting and how values and methods and all of those things sort of like support the top line goals. Mm -hmm.
3: Thank you, Duda. Um, Caitlin says, um, Bethany mentioned her mentor and you said your grandfather was a major influence in your life. Who are your other mentors and why is it important to have them? What's your advice on developing those relationships?
0: I, I like to believe I have many, many mentors and I, when I am, when I'm approaching someone I really try to find what they're good at and what I could learn from them. And hopefully I can offer something in of value in return in some cases or a different perspective or something else. And I have, I don't know, I think it's an interesting question, like what is the, uh, you know, how do you go about acquiring them? I don't think I have like a real system per se, but what I will say is I I really try to observe the attributes I admire, why I admire those attributes and what I can learn from them. And my approach in sort of approaching someone and say, I don't say like, will you be my mentor? Right? Like, That just sounds like I'm putting a whole bunch of uh, work, on someone else, um, I ask something a little bit different. It's like, hey, um, and I actually did this with somebody on LinkedIn the other day. It was some version of like, you know, I really liked your article on this. Uh, if you if you have a specific moment, I've been trying to do this, and here is where I kinda got stuck. And I tried these things. I liked your idea. Is there anything else I should be thinking about? Most people, if you write some version of this, no, it's not like this blanket LinkedIn thing. It's like, we have a common network. Let's connect. I'm like, that's not going to go anywhere. But I have expressed clear interest in their work I'm trying to learn from what they have, and once even when I receive some of those things, I will always reply and say, you know what, you want to try this resource, and so on and so forth. So the way this happened was, um, he's a he's a he's a very big thought leader, and I, and I said that I don't think he, he needed to reply to me at all, but he replied, and as he replied, um, I followed up and I kind of gave him a little bit of an update. You know, I tried this; this really worked, and um, Uh, And I said, you know, if you you have like 15, 20 minutes, I would love to catch up. And he said, you know, I don't have time right now. Can you follow up a little bit later? And I followed up and we got some time set up. Uh, We caught up, we exchanged some books that we both committed to read and sort of get back with each other. And that's been like one of my ways to like engage with people who I really admire. Uh, But I feel like I can learn more but it becomes more of a mutually interesting dialogue versus please tell me this. And of course, like a big no-no, cause I get this. Oh, I would like you to be a mentor. And here's a job opening. That, 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 is, that is not a mentorship relationship. You just want me to like refer to your job. It, like you should apply to the job. <laughs> so that's probably not the way to go if you're looking for mentors and so on and so forth.
3: Yes, Duda, and thank you for reinforcing that it's a two-way street, and it really is about a relationship rather than just extracting value from from someone. Yeah. Duda, Kenny has a question. He says, um, "You've you've been so successful across a wide array of companies. What is the best piece of professional advice you've ever received?"
0: I, I I've I've received. First of all, I will say this. I mean, I think. On paper, everything looks amazing. It's actually uh, not as amazing when you live that life. (laughs) I think there are more failures than the resume bullet point (laughs) captures as success. Uh, And a lot of them might I say. Uh, uh, That being said, I think some of the most important lessons that I have sort of um, learned along the way, advice or role model and learn from one is really know your stuff. And if something needs to get done, do it. Don't wait for someone else to do it. And that doesn't mean like you just go like do things willy nilly, but be somebody who solves problem versus the intellectual who points out problems and gives frameworks for problems on how they would solve, but actually not solve them, right? The second thing, which I saw something very early at my career at HP actually, I had this, uh, you know, know, mid-level manager, I was like, you know, or like, you know, zero plus one years of experience, right? Zero in college, like some, whatever I did, plus one year of experience that like, so like, he's like, obviously the 10 year guy and I was in software, et cetera, et cetera. And something was not working. And he basically just came say like, you know what? Why don't we debug this thing together? And he just sat with me and went line by line. I was writing software and code And what what I left with that experience was he could have found somebody else. There are many other people in his team, right? I was like three levels below him, right? But what was so impressive and bought so much of credibility for me was he knew his job to some degree. And even if he did not know the code, it was not below his pay grade to sit and do that job with me. And I think that's one of the things I always say is sometimes folks go like, oh, yeah, it's not my thing. Well, I have an MBA, so like I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't have to run a spreadsheet because I went to Haas, right? Like now, if you need to run a spreadsheet, you need to run a spreadsheet if that's what gets done. So hopefully that helps a little bit in sort of advice plus some role modeling that has had profound interest uh, impact on my in my career.
3: Thank you, Duda. Last question from us, this one from Casey, and she's saying, you know, startups are known for being crazy and high stress and really dynamic and intensive. How do you maintain balance in your life? What what do you do that that gives you energy and joy outside of work?
0: Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, that's, it's fair to say startups are crazy, but the tech, industry in general uh, craziness is almost celebrated like if if it's not very crazy you must be doing something wrong (laughs) so over the years I will say there was a time when I was extremely stressed out about things not like what's going to happen I mean I had put on a lot of weight that was basically because I love desserts and I love I really do love desserts it's like my Achilles heel um and I, I talk to like, I, I really do like when I can't figure something, i actually talk to people. And one of the, some of the very valuable pieces of advice I got was you need to control your own calendar. You can't let the world control your time because everybody has 24 hours in a day. And you need to decide how you want to put in time. So one of the things that I have done in, for like now years and years is time for exercise. It's important for me it helps me create a little bit of space between work and non-work and that has been a tactic that I have used. I still go to the gym about four hours a week but I will tie them into the more stressful days where a lot is going on and I will consciously go because for me, I'm not saying this for everybody else, for eight person, it will be different but for me, being on an elliptical or doing a routine listening to some music just create some space between work and then going back to my home life and i do feel creating that space has allowed me to have a meaningful relationship in my personal life and not having things spill over as much not that it never spills over it does spill over but it has helped me really manage that's something i do very consciously and even if I'm super tired and I don't want to do it, I'll literally go to the gym, spend 15 minutes, watch a couple of TikToks on the, you know, on the on the elliptical, and then sort of like come back. Uh, but even that little kind of routine has helped me really de-stress and kind of put things into a little bit of perspective. Yeah,
3: I love that, Duda. That was a great anecdote. Thank you so much for spending the last hour with us. What a treat to have you. Um, and, and such a pleasure to um, highlight you and Active Campaign for the Breakline community. Please, y'all, join me in thanking Duda for his time. Really appreciate it, Duda. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Bethany. This is wonderful.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something
1: tell you what if you enjoy what you heard today we only need you to do one of three things hit that like button hit that subscribe and if it really touched your spirit go on review and rate this episode it would mean a lot to us it helps us get the word out there it helps us continue to share this great content and most importantly we just love to hear what you what you'd have to say about some of the content that we're putting out there so Please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia
2: Bodwin. we will see you next week.